Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Before we get started, this is the trigger warning. We're going to be talking about messed up stuff, possibly described as another moniker in a moment of the non-PG writing. Rate, rating? Writing. Yes. As a Freudian slip, because our guest today is an author. But before we get into that, to finish the disclaimer, uh, we will be talking about things involving horror culture, which could involve anything from child abuse, suicide, rape, um, foul language will be spoke. So if that's not your cup of tea, go listen to something boring, as I usually say, or uh, for a more uh, courteous, mature. yeah, mature, maybe think on it for a moment and maybe listen Proceed or proceed or just proceed. Do collect $200 and go directly not to jail and enjoy this episode of Horror Makes Us Happy. <laughs> uh, so as usual, uh, talking about our uh, guest coming up, we're going to be speaking with Miguel Rodriguez, organ- organizer and I believe founder of Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. Don't quote me on that. Hmm. Uh, also, Rebecca Reinhardt, actress in such works as The Embalmers, Fright Vision and Sister Krampus. But today, we have the company of author Kathy Koja, who has written such works as The Cipher, Strange Angels, and Buddha Boy. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So in this interview, uh, as we mentioned before we started recording, the theme is basically going through your childhood, adult year, um, childhood adolescence, and adult years, trying to tease out what it is that you like about horror. Um, but that said... It's not meant to be a therapy session, so if there's any questions you don't want to answer, just say pass and we'll move on. But what are some of your earliest memories about scary things or you know horror in your childhood? Probably the strongest uh, horror memory. I remember my sister taking uh, me and a bunch of my cousins to the drive-in to watch the new spooky movie, Night of the Living Dead. Okay. And Original back in black the- and white, huh? Yeah, back in the day, there was no way to know what we were seeing. And Mm. she started out saying, you guys stop, you know, stop cutting up, stop laughing. Everybody, you know, calm down. We're going to watch this movie. And by the end, we were all crammed into the front seat of the car. And a couple of us, I think, (laughs) were crying. And I remember watching that film and the hero has done everything right and Finally, you know, the authorities come and things are going to be okay. And they straight up shoot him in the head. And yeah. the, the takeaway, the racism flew over my head because I was a kid, I was a white kid yeah. and that flew over my head. But the absolute shock of the injustice taught me everything I needed to know about authority figures and was probably the best lesson you could ever give a child. Do not trust authority. They are not there, you know, with your, be wary of authority because you have to, to parse it out and see if they have your best interests in mind. But that kind of falls away. It was the heart of the film that stayed with me. Um, I remember reading Dracula when I was 10. I loved it. I thought, wow, this is wow. Like Bram Stoker's original? Yeah. Nice. And it was this great signet edition too with this, you know, fucked up cover where it looks like a bat or it looks like a skull. Super cool design. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading this and thinking, you know, again, 
it was not something that I could articulate at that age, but the idea was, well, this is about hunger. You know, this is about who gets to eat whom, who's at the top of the food chain, whose hunger signifies and whose does not. And why are we afraid of that? Why are we afraid of, why does hunger terrify us? Is that like an atavistic thing? Does it come from being eaten by large beasts at night or are we afraid of each other or what? So, I mean, I would say it's primal, you know, I mean, hunger is one of the first few uh, emotions and just feelings that you ever experience. So yeah, I would say it's nature in that case, as, as far as nature versus nurture. But you experience it from the inside out. Right. And this very much Dracula's hunger is presented from the outside in. And uh, he's, okay. you know, he's the bad guy. He's the, he's the hunger we have to guard against, right? Mm. Yeah, it's not your hunger. It's someone right, else's Right, it's hunger. somebody wants to eat you. Um, mm-hmm. I do, as well as, as right, I create immersive events. And I did one based on Dracula. I adapted Dracula for this event. And the image that I used in the poster was a fork. And the tagline was appetite must be fed. And the the conceit of the show was you going to this dinner with Dracula where he is interviewing, um, oh, what's his name? The guy, the, Jonathan Harker. Jonathan Harker is having his job interview with Dracula. And, you're, and you are there. You're there at the table. So the idea that you are no longer at the top of the food chain is very disconcerting for human beings. Mm-hmm. Please tell me the fork was pointed downwards. It was. Okay, good. <laughs> it would only make sense, especially if it was a two-pronged fork. Actually, it was a four-pronged fork. It was a salad fork, oh. which was our little joke. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of it being vegan. Uh-huh. Actually, we had food on the premises, and it was vegan food. Everything mm-hmm. in the Everything in the installation was available for people to interact with. And so we did have vegan food available just in case somebody decided to eat the food that was there. I was just pointing out the fact that uh, Dracula wouldn't be vegan, but yes. No, he would not. No, no, blood's not very vegan. (laughs) No. Uh, Okay. So yeah, two two strong uh, influences right off the bat. We we may be able to end the call early. <laughs> <laughs> what else? What else you got from childhood? What else you want? Those are pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I know that's exactly. They're pretty good. Um, I used to read a lot of anthologies, and a lot of them were you know oddly geared towards middle grade readers. And some of the stories in there were pretty sharp, and they were pretty they were stranger maybe than things that might be allowed today or that might be, you know, something that was Mm -hmm. meant for kids. But I remember reading those tons of those uncritically and just, you know, soaking it all in, you know, different guests have gone through different journeys, obviously in their lives. Would you say that you had, were already starting to be a fan of horror in your early years or did that not come until later? I have never really thought in terms of genre ever in the things that that draw me. Um, I tend to go for things that are, the voices are very strong um, and indelible. And I read for voice. I like watching films where there's a strong director, there's a strong narrative presence, you know, guiding Mm -hmm. the film where you, you know, you're being told a story by someone. 
It's not, you know, something that was put together out of, you know, an identikit. I just like things that are strong. Okay. And I was thinking about this before, before our talk today. And, you know, the title horror makes us happy. It's like, what about strong, dark, disturbing, or violent things? What could possibly make us happy? And the answer I got came out of a memory, not a childhood memory. Um, Some years ago, about 10 years ago, a family member was very, very ill and was in the ICU. And this was a situation that had been going on for some time and things were, were quite sad. And I remember standing in the hallway waiting, you know, there are only a couple people allowed at a time in the ICU to visit. So we were standing in the hallway waiting our turn and, you know, kind of talking like you do and how are you and, you know, relative talk. And at one point I turned to the other people who were there and said, this is just horrible, isn't it? And everybody's face relaxed and everybody started to talk again, but in a more open and urgent way, because we had all acknowledged in that second that this was really bad and that somebody that we cared about was in big trouble and there really wasn't anything we could do about it except kind of offer our presence and just be there. That was all we could do. And maybe that is the appeal is not the word I want. Maybe that is the benefit of all dark fiction, dark art in that sense, is that it acknowledges that things can be really, really bad and that those things are true. And you are, you, you're granted the relief, right? Of being acknowledged, that's being acknowledged, saying, yeah, I know what is happening now is terrible. I know there are monsters. I know there are things that are beyond your control out there in the darkness. But if we can acknowledge that, at least we have the comfort of truth going forward. Mm-hmm. Like the comfort of um, knowing, understanding something. So, so it makes it more relatable, I guess, for lack of a better term. Well, like what you just said about maybe you won't be able to do anything about it. That's exactly where I was going to go with that is that you can't necessarily do anything about it until you identify what the problem is. And you know, you're identifying it as, isn't this horrible? You know, now that you've identified it, okay, now what do we do about it? And in some cases, the answer is there's nothing we can do, or there's nothing we can do about that, but here's what we can do. And then you focus on the things that you can do. Um, Right. And it gives you a place to stand, right? You're like, okay, we've acknowledged that our home is ringed by monsters. All right. It's not just a funny sound. We're not imagining it. The place is is infested. All right. What are we going to do? What can we do? And at least it gives you a place to stand. The That sort of bottomless tumbling where you're not sure, that to me makes the most disturbing kind of, of dark fiction or dark narrative where there is no place to stand. There's you're never really sure. Is this really happening? Is it not happening? Are there, are those monsters or am I just imagining it? <clears throat> so if you wouldn't say that you were a fan uh, in your childhood, then did you even know that that kind of material was meant to be entertaining? Well, I was, was entertained. It? Well, right. And there, and as a, that's what's so great about being a young reader and why read, young readers should be allowed to read 
uncritically because that's when you're developing your shit detector, right? When you're a kid, you, you read anything, you will watch things, you'll read things and you start to develop for yourself the idea, is this something, do I like this? Is this good? Do I like it? Do I want more of it? And you kind of naturally gravitate towards the things that you like or the things that you don't like, you just don't pursue them. You don't spend a lot of time thinking about it going, well, why didn't I like, you just don't ever do it again, right? You never read it again. Mm -hmm. I think that all readers have receptors for various kinds of, of art. And when you meet something that hits your receptors, you generally know it. What's interesting is where your receptors can retain an artist or a writer or whatever throughout the course of a lifetime. And there are very few, right, that you can continue to follow and that are still relevant to you from you know day one to day whenever. On that topic, not only am I wondering what artists or authors or what have you would fit that title, I'm also wondering what is what it is about. What is it about the media that they created that um, that hit your sensors? That's a good question. I think again, it's that it's intensity. One of my favorite books on Earth, possibly my favorite book, is Wuthering Heights. And especially when I, that was another book I read when I was 10. And what's interesting too about Wuthering Heights and Dracula, just from a technical standpoint, is how modern both their approaches were. It's a very fragmented narrative in that sense. And it relies on you to make the connection. And which is, I think it's a great achievement for Bram Stoker as a writer. That's pretty cool. And same with Emily Bronte. Wuthering Heights was the first book I ever read where I suddenly realized like a clap of thunder that the narrator was lying to me. And I had never been, I'd never understood the idea of the, you know, the unreliable narrator before. And it blew my mind. It's like, oh, Nellie's a liar. I know she's lying <laughs> because I can see she said X, Y, Z. But I, when I look back, I, I am only seeing X, Y. It's like, oh, then you start thinking, well, wait a minute, how much of this book is a lie? How much, mm. how, you know, I've been led up the garden path to believe certain things. So what else might not be true? So mm. also work that asks a kind of involvement of me. And I always try to offer my own readers this and and people come to my events, same thing. I don't like things that are super easy and that are, if I don't have any work to do, if there's no involvement for me, then I'm liable to not stay interested. Um, if a piece of art is asking me to kind of have a conversation with me and a conversation between equals, it's not saying sit back and I'll tell you a tale. It's like, Let's talk about this. Let's let's examine this monster. Let's look at this. Let's go out on these moors, whatever. And let's figure this thing out. That draws me and continues to draw me. And that that can that can operate and does operate. And that's how you don't art. It's art because it lasts and lasts forever. Um, it continues to operate no matter where you meet it. The the 10-year-old me who read Wuthering Heights is not the same as the 62-year-old me who can read it it will tell me different things because I can meet it right in a different place. Same with certain pieces of music or certain visual artists or films. You can keep going back to them because they can keep meeting you where you are. And that's hard to do. That's real hard to do. 
I'm curious, you know, you talk about this thing about um, her being an un- unreliable narrator and how this was a big thing for you. It's interesting because it's almost a dichotomy between what you said a minute ago about liking strong voices and, and the narrative presence. Although I could see how maybe she was a strong voice. It's just that she was unreliable, you know, whereas do you see where I'm going with that? No, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going uh, to. So you would mentioned earlier that you liked strong voices, a strong narrative presence being told a story. It sounded like you were saying like the expectation was that it was a, what the narrator was telling you was true. Like this is what's going on ABCD. And now you're pointing out that this book was very impactful to you precisely because it was not reliable. So did I misunderstand? No, 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 no. Where's the, where's the linkage? I mean, that's a question it's, like where, I guess I don't understand the question. I'm just pointing out that it's interesting that you said you liked this thing. And now you're saying you're liking something that's, I think seems to be the opposite. No, no, not at all. Um, not to me anyway, the, the strength of the narrative is in, or one of the strengths of the narrative is in that twist, right? Where you've invested your thoughts and your beliefs in a certain the story is unfolding this way but when you realize that the story could in fact it could be a completely different story that makes it all the more engaging because Emily Bronte was also writing you know an explosive narrative way because that the story of Wuthering Heights is being told we are our the viewpoint character Mr. Lockwood is this guy who shows up he's a, a tenant at this manor house and he's a complete outsider. So he is hearing, he meets this fucked up family, which is what is so great. The beginning of this book, everybody in it is terrifying. You're like, he is like a, like a, like a puppy in a wolf den. He, he has never met anybody like these people. And he then becomes ill and has to be, you know, kind of nursed back to health or whatever by this unreliable Nellie. And she sits there and, you know, un- unfolds this tale to him. But we're really hearing it. We're Mr. Lockwood hearing it from her, right? And mm-hmm. as it goes on, that's why everything is there. I mean, she plays completely fair with you. Everything is there. There's another book that I can think of that gives you a kind of the same experience, um, Sarah Waters, Fingersmith, which has been made into films. And, and I think there's a BBC production that I haven't seen, but that is also a book that plays completely fair, but there's a moment where you see everything revolve in a completely different way. And I remember reading that the first time and literally laughing out loud when I saw what she had done, that's real hard to do. And and it was beautifully done. And it's the same, you are feeling very much the strong voice is giving you, you know, a strong authorial voice, right? Is giving you this story and they're in complete control of what they're doing and giving you this. And you're reacting to it and your own reactions can be equally strong because it's like, oh, I was fooled or, oh, I didn't understand or, oh, now I know. That's riveting. That's that's a dialogue between you and a piece of art. That's that's pretty great. Yeah. 
You sound dubious. Are you dubious about that? That was a very dubious. No. Well, sure, but. <laughs> I would say it was a flippant, yeah. It wasn't flippant? No, was it no, flippant? Not, not, no. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still just trying to wrap my head around these two things that they kind of seem opposites to me. And I'm just trying to see how they, where they connect. I mean, in both cases there, it's about an authoritative, authoritative voice, but I'm, you know, you're, you're also enjoying the fact that there was something unreliable there, but I, you know, that you figured out that it was unreliable and, and think of it like the the, the meta voice, the meta voice of the person who's really telling us the story is Emily Bronte. Right. And so that's the voice that we hear in, you know, the film pans labyrinth, Mm -hmm. you know how you don't know if the fawn is good or bad. Mm -hmm. You can never be sure. Same thing. You have to make your own and the whole entire, that's probably my favorite of all his films. And I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. I would watch anything that he did, but you have to decide for yourself. And that's a, a huge moral fable too. It's, it's one of the greatest examinations of human cruelty that you will ever see on a screen. It's very difficult to watch for that reason, but mm-hmm. you never know if that fawn is good or bad. You never know what really happened to the little girl. You have to decide. You're asked to you know, participate in the story by this great voice, Del Toro's voice, telling you the story through the person of you know, the characters in the fawn. It, again, I'm laughing because this is another example of sort of a dichotomy. <laughs> you know, we were talking about how you like strong voices because uh, you know, vagueness can be scary. And here you've given an example of something that you like. Because it's vague. But I don't think of that as vague. I don't think of it as as vague at all. There's no, um, you are being asked to participate, but there is very much a feeling of you can believe the fun is good. You can believe the fun is bad. You can, I don't think there's vagueness of intent, right? I don't think that Del Toro is like, well, I just put a bunch of stuff together and, you know, y'all figure it out. There's very much a strong driving narrative intent behind that story and yes but it sounds like the intent was to be vague and let you choose what you want to choose but that's not being vague that's offering you a choice being vague is not knowing if there is a choice right it's like well here's a bunch of stuff i put together you know you yeah, figure it's like it out passive and um the opposite of passive, I'm bad at words active, today. Right. <laughs> active, active, right. Like, <laughs> passive and active, unknown. Passive is being vague, like, yeah, you figure it out. But active w- would be like, no, I-, I want you to figure it out because that's fun. Right. I want you to figure it out. And I want, and more than that, I want you to participate in it because without audience, without the audience's active participation, you know, art is just, art is nothing. Um, when I used to do school visits for my YA books, sometimes I would take one of my books and just throw it on the ground and the kids would go, they always went, "Mm. like, what are you doing? (laughs) And I'm like, that is a book without a reader. It's nothing, right? It's just an object. The whole point of a book is for you to read it, for you to participate with it. Otherwise it doesn't exist without an audience. So the strong and the strong voice is never afraid of your participation. It it invites it. And the same way that when my own work is being read or reviewed or whatever, 
I'm always pleased when the reactions are strong, for good or bad. Readers don't owe writers anything, right? People don't owe me reviews. People don't owe me anything. And if they are willing to pick up a piece of my work and engage with it, I'm very happy. If they don't like it, that's perfectly, that's more than fine. That's their reaction. I respect that. Mm-hmm. But that they had some kind of a an exchange with it, that's what I'm always going for. Hmm. Uh, I'm looking at some of our other questions, which are typically more geared towards horror related stuff. Like, you know, did you participate in Halloween? And you know, Oh, we can go there. That's fun. Yeah, it's always a fun direction. <laughs> did you participate in sure. Halloween as a kid? Hell yeah. I love <laughs> Halloween. Answer. No, I love Halloween. I'm, I hope that it, I know because of the, the plague, these last years have been really tough for families to decide on, you know, what is a good, safe way to continue the tradition, but I sure hope that it does because I can't think of anything more fun than being a little kid and running around in weird clothes, demanding people give you stuff. I mean, how great is that? How fun is that? The combination of the two awesome things, right? It's like, you don't just get to dress up as crazy stuff. You also get to tell, no, demand people give you candy. And they do, right? And they do. That's the best part. You go up to someone's house and just scream at their front door and they come out and give you a Hershey bar. <laughs> what could be wrong with that, right? That's awesome. No, I love Halloween. And if only if only the rest of the year was so nice. I know, right? And if only I I hope that it will survive in some way and that kids will will still be able to, you know, do that because it is it's also the joy of misrule, right? And you get to start thinking, what am I going to wear? What am I going to be? You know. Did you have a favorite costume when you were a kid? No. And I'm not super crafty, unfortunately. Like I'm not the kind of person who would put together a really cool costume. That's just not me. No, it doesn't have to be a favorite because it was the best designed. No, just- no and I don't, but I don't remember any of them. So probably not. Probably not. Okay. How about a least favorite? I remember nothing. So I can't tell <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember. Okay. That's fair. That's it fair. Worth, it was worth asking. Did you have any uh, scary dreams, any re- reoccurring dreams when you were a kid? No, but I remember having scary dreams after reading some of those horror anthologies. And there's one, and I don't remember the writer's name. The story is called Thernley Abbey. And it's about, there's some haunted nun or nun's bones are creeping around the hallway. or And I remember being really afraid of that. And that these bones would just suddenly, you know, start strutting down the hallway. And that's all I remember. But I remember having nightmares and my parents going, you probably shouldn't read those books. I'm like, yeah, no, that's, that's not, we're not going to do that. that. That's not the cure for this, right? That's not, but those kinds of, when things become part of your subconscious like that, that's really, I mean, that's really great. What a great thing to have a piece of, writing or a film or whatever. And I'm sure we all had nightmares after Night of the Living Dead. I don't remember it, but I know there was great discussion in the extended family how my sister was no longer allowed to take us to the movies. So. <laughs> you touched on enjoyment, which uh, was something I wanted to ask about earlier. Obviously, you're talking about this shock in Night of the Living Dead that was not very enjoyable, but was there other stuff in that movie you did enjoy or, you know, what did you enjoy about reading Dracula? Like 
What where was the enjoyment part of it? Probably in in reading more than in the film because in the film everything is colored by that last you know moment for me right. and it it just and that's another narrative too that kind of flips around right it completely turns your expectations on their head because usually when the hero wins he wins right mm-hmm. but right. not in that case um, probably in in Dracula and to a, a and as Wuthering Heights too, because I think Wuthering Heights is one of the great ghost stories of literature. And I don't often see it categorized that way, but literally everybody in that novel has, a, they're completely unsurprised by supernatural happenings. They're hmm. not surprised by ghosts. They're not surprised by dead people coming back and scratching on the window saying, let me in. No one's like, Lockwood, you're fucking crazy. Everyone's like, ooh, well, we don't talk about that. Hmm. So that acceptance of there being a another dimension to, you know, the material world, I found very enjoyable and I do still. And I think that's why we like fairy tales so much and why we believe them when we're kids, because they're telling us something true, right? They're telling us that the things that you see are part of the world, but they're not all of the world. and that feeling of, you know, wow, there's a whole another dimension to this experience of living that you can maybe only find in the dark. That's pretty enjoyable. Acceptance of other dimensions as real. And as a component, right, of reality and saying, okay, I, what if there were vampires? What if there were, you know, nuns' bones? rattling down a hallway. What if these things were true? How is affirming this other dimension as real uh, beneficial? Well, it enlarges your experience of being alive, right? When kids are not allowed to play, that's bad for them. When literally it's it's harmful to children if they're not allowed to play, you know, make-believe, playing, imagining things. That faculty is so strong in us when we're little, right? We're able to slip seamlessly from one world to the next. And especially when it's an experience created among a group, it gets even stronger, right? Because you have to, you have to decide on the rules. Like, well, if the floor is lava, is the carpet lava or is just the floor or, and so you're really creating that, that whole world by your participation. And that, that's what fiction does too, right? Yeah. I was thinking about that when you were talking about you know, it's that's the interesting thing about kids doing this is that they're able to, as you're saying, create rules, but also disregard ones. Yes. Um, with equal abandon, shall we sure. say. And say, and that gives you an immense power too, right? It's like, yeah. no, this thing is what I say it is. That floor is lava. The carpet is okay. And the power of that imagination. And that's why investing you know, investing who's ever watching the film or who's ever reading the book, whatever, in participation makes it a thousand times more powerful. Did Was there ever a time in your childhood where you were actually terrified of something in real life? Yeah, we're going to pass on that. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, probably pass on the next question then too, because the follow-up is whether or not it introduced any uh, or, you know, triggered any existing fears, uh, you know, that has moved with you through life, shall we say? And I think I will say this, that I think generational trauma is a, is a thing that as we learn more and more about it, 
in some ways, it only confirms how deep a shared imagining in that sense can go, that you can be affected by things that may not have happened to you personally, but they did still happen to you. Yeah. Or things that 20 years later are happening or are rules in the household because of something that happened that a new person into the the household would have no clue about and have no understanding of why the rule is what it is. But Right. Why don't we ever talk about that? Or why don't we ever go see X, Y, Z? It's like, no, we just don't do that. How do you address fears when, especially fears in children, because they can be, like you said, they can be, they can be debilitating in the short term and then they can leave a real scar, a living scar going forward. It's like, this is why I'm afraid of waterfalls, right? Or whatever. It doesn't seem like a it seems like an irrational fear until someone learns the the basis behind it. Right. And that's kind of where I was going with the question is saying, even if you don't want to talk about the cause of it, is has there been an irrational fear that has gone with you moving forward? No, but I have other irrational fears that I don't seem <laughs> to have any cause for, unfortunately. But I think that's true for everybody. Yeah, Isn't it funny, too, that people <laughs> will have these little triggers and you might not even know why? Or, you know, our friend will say, oh, I may not even know why. Right. I can't do that or I can't go there or whatever. Like, okay, it's it's clear that it's a hot button. We'll just, you know, we'll stay away from it. But yeah, there are. And it shapes behavior too, right? It really shapes behavior. That absolutely does. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't want to like even talk to yourself subconsciously about what the fear is. You just, you just kind of know that, no, I do not like that. Don't want to go any further into that. Right. And you're, you're right. whistling past the graveyard every time the thought pops <laughs> up, right? It's like, la, 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 la. We don't talk about that. Keep going. Right. <laughs> I like that analogy. Whistling That's past the graveyard. Yeah, I like <laughs> that one. And it's so fatally easy to, to really scare children. And is. which is why, you know, lying to kids is probably as low as you can go. You don't, you want to offer the amount of truth that they're asking for, but mm. you don't lie to a kid. You well, I mean, elf on the shelf, you know, harmless. Can elf. you imagine what kind of a <laughs> sick fuck thought that was a good idea? Honestly. A voyeur. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, they say, you know, Santa sees you. So that's voyeur too. Also but, but Santa, and it, but I never thought of Santa as being... Like, yeah, the voyeur aspect never, ever was part of my conception of of Santa or that because of the idea was, plus he comes from a real person. It's like there was actually this Bishop Nicholas that went around Mm. giving out toys and whatever. So, but yeah, that idea of you being, I mean, some people, that's what they like about God, that he's like the sleepless eye, right? That's constantly making sure you don't do anything wrong. I mean, the way the way you started to describe that, I thought you were going to go into describing Sauron's eye. Yeah, exactly, yep, that's, the first that's what it's like, too. right? This big sleepless eye, and then you're then you tell kids, "Oh, but God loves you." Wait a minute, you're giving me cognitive dissonance when you tell me exactly. that this staring eye of Sauron is actually my friend. Something's wrong yeah. with you. You're you're not giving household. me right the whole tale here. Yeah, I do this because I love you. Exactly, right? He just loves you that much. He can't take his eye off you. Just hey. What are you doing? I know, right? <laughs> it's like the ever popular, I'll give you something to cry about. No, I already, I'm crying now. <laughs> I'm really good, good okay? <laughs> I'm good. Uh, 
So let's move into uh, teenage years. What were some of the scary stories or books or movies that uh, impacted you during your teenagers? I became, that's when I sort of became aware of Shirley Jackson in my adolescence. And I, in fact, still have the old paperback of Come Along With Me, which is the last published work of hers. It's all short fiction and it has the beginning of her last novel. And I didn't come to a lot of her novels till I was much older, but that was kind of a more, you know, grown up step into dark or disturbing fiction. And a lot of her fiction too turns on that axis of what is real and feeling unmoored, feeling lost, feeling not even abandoned, but like the world has kind of receded from you and everything is against you. And it's very powerful and it's extremely creepy. And I think Stephen King, I don't know if it's The Shining, I don't remember which of his books that he dedicated to her and said to Shirley Jackson, who never had to raise her voice, which is true. She never does. She's not going to give you the gross out scare. She's not going to, you know, go for the shock, but she can, you know, put a stick into your psyche and just kind of stir it around and give you that. <laughs> kind of feeling of dread where the, the floor is falling away and you don't know where you are. So she was probably the strongest voice, the strongest influence that I can remember from those years. And later when it, there was Anne Rice, I read Interview with the Vampire. And again, that's another super strong voice, this narrative voice that just kind of sweeps you up and takes you away. Mm-hmm. Always good in a, mm. in a piece of literature when the narrative voice is just that strong. Like you're not, it absorbs you into the story. You're no longer reading a book. You're listening to this person right. tell a tale. Not too long ago, I was rereading The Haunting of Hill House, which is probably my favorite scary book in the world. And I was reading it in my own house, like at 11 in the morning with the sun pouring through the windows. And my husband came in unexpectedly in the room and I screamed it <laughs> through the book. Because that's how, that's what she could do, right? She can. That is effective. Yes. Oh, man. And I've read this book 10,000 times too. It doesn't, but it doesn't matter, right? I was, it was, I was in that awful kitchen. Suddenly this person was in the room with me that had no business being there. And I screamed and threw the book. So that, there is no higher praise, right? That's, that's as high as it gets. Yep. <laughs> uh, let's see. So. Uh, you mentioned Shirley Jackson, um, horror anthologies and rice. I'm kind of in my mind setting part of what you said about Shirley Jackson aside for a reason that I'll explain here in a second. And this comes up often in, in our interviews, particularly with creators in the business, because I think there's a difference between being a fan of something at the emotional level. And then there's also being a fan of it as a creator there's the auteur part and then there's the emotional part. You know what I mean? Right. And you're reading and it, you're, I, you're reading it or taking it in on both levels at the same time. Right. But the focus of this call we have found seems to get more at the heart of it when you focus on the, the emotional part of it than the auteur part of it. You know what I mean? I don't know if you can separate it out. If you're... <laughs> Sometimes go ahead. No, I don't. I'm just, and just in my own experience, I don't think it's, it's no longer possible. I've been wearing this hat <laughs> for so long that my head is actually right. shaped like the hat. Yeah. It's, <laughs> right. it's impossible to 
be able to, to step away from the making of it when you're a maker, because part of you is always watching what, pe- which is why the Sarah Waters book made me laugh in delight at how well she had fooled me, right? At how well mm. I had followed her, you know, up the garden path and how flawlessly she did it. I don't know if I would have laughed at that moment if it wasn't something that I also aspired to do. I might have been appalled by by what she did and by by the way the story had turned at that point, right? Because it's it's a very, right. you know, it's it's not good what's happening, but it made me laugh and delight because she did it so well. I mean, the same with Pan's Labyrinth, the same with anything that I really love. Part of me loves it because it's so beautifully made. And I'm, you know, I'm in awe of it when it's when it's really well made. And I like to mm. You acknowledge that, you know, even as you're watching it, because a part of you is always, you know, there are two of you watching it, eating the same bag of popcorn, but two of you nonetheless. (laughs) Anything else in your uh, teenage years jump out at you? I'm trying to think. Um, I remember watching the first Alien movie in a theater. Nice. And that's another film that holds up and holds up and holds up. And of all the, you know, the movies in that franchise, I think it's the only one that reaches a level of art in the sense of it will always have something to say and always have something to give if you can come to it. You brought up uh, Anne Rice in interview. Uh, you'd mentioned the thing about the strong narrative. Was there anything else about it that you liked other than that? It was the first time I had ever seen a child as a vampire, a child created to be a vampire as, you know, and in the story, uh, Claudia is made a vampire to try to retain some hold over Lewis and, mm-hmm. and it works for a while. But I thought that was so brilliant that this is a person whose experience of the world, I mean, any, you know, in that in that mythos, any vampire is sort of frozen at the the moment of their creation. They will never age. They will never, you know, they are that until they're, they're either that or nothing, but they don't grow in that sense. They're, they're eternal stasis, which is why I've always, I understand why vampires would go mad because if you have eternal life without eternal growth, wow, that is a recipe for unhappiness. But that mm. this child this person, this entity would always have to live in the body of something that is completely helpless was, I thought, just a fucking masterstroke. Yeah, that's one aspect um, of it I didn't even really uh, think of so much. You know, you always think of the uh, the cheat or the the unfair hand that she's dealt and the fact that she will never go through uh, certain stages as lo- of life and she'll never grow up. You know, she's just perpetually a child. But also the physical aspect of it. That's that's got to suck. You're going to be this short for the rest of your life. You're going to be physically overpowered by everyone who's larger than you for the rest of your life. Like just there's no hope. You either have to kill them or let them do what they want with you. Mm -hmm. If you want to if you don't want to blow your cover, you have to, you know, go along and be a kid. And there are places where a kid shouldn't go or shouldn't be found. Right. And especially since this is like a nocturnal creature. Most little kids are not out on the boulevards at 2 a.m. You know, no, they're, they're really, not. or they shouldn't right. be, right? It's and dooming it, her to a very complicated and just really annoying life, I would imagine. <laughs> right. And it, and, it, and it was done as an act of, you know, and ba- that's, people do this to children all the time. They make them do things or they make them participate in things that, well, you know, we all decided we're moving to Arizona now. Well, nobody asked me. 
you know, right. tough, get in the car. You, mm. you're at the, at the mercy of things that are bigger than you. And even though she's a killer, it also, I don't want to say warps, but it also directs her cruelty in a very dark way. Once she realizes, you know, I, this is it for me. I'm never going to mm. be. There's a, there's a moment in the story where Lestat, she, she's plotting to kill him. Spoiler alert, but she's plotting mm. to kill him. And she says, um, I, have a, I have a gift for you in the next room. And he says to her, I hope it's a beautiful woman with endowments you'll never possess. Mm. And that, I mean, he, he's turning the knife in several ways there, right? Mm. And, and it isn't only that should, she will always have a child's body. She will always, you know, she can't grow. But it's throwing that in her face, right? It's like, I made you the little monster that you are, little monster. So she, but she had her own plans and they, they worked for a while. Mm. Yeah, Lestat was not a very nice person or character. And that's what's so disturbing. I mean, that, that the same as Pan's Labyrinth and that the depiction of real cruelty is far more to me. That is, that is something in horror. I almost can't watch. Um, there's a film called son of Saul that came out. I want to say it was before the plague. I'm not sure. Maybe 2019. And in it, it's set in the, the Nazi death camps and the, the man, the main character that we follow is convinced that his son is present in one of the camps in, I don't want to spoil it, but in a certain capacity. And the entire movie is about him trying to find out. And if, if that's true, what can he do about it? Mm -hmm. And the depiction of cruelty is so stark and so I don't want to say dreamlike because that makes it seem it was very dreamlike. It's not dreamlike. It's Surreal. dreamlike almost to the sense of you understand that these are things that happened, mm. right? And you understand that all these things are true, but to the person experiencing them, there's a part of you that is, I don't want to say just latching onto it or so, right. There's, you're not even numb. You're at a point where if I'm going to survive, I have to make some kind of accommodation with this daily, you know, tsunami of evil. I will never forget that movie. I don't know if I could watch it again. Right. But I'll never forget it. It's interesting. Whenever I talk to somebody who, as you say, you wouldn't classify, classify yourself as a fan of horror, but you know, there's a lot of things that we've been talking about here that, uh, you know, are in that genre, but yet there's this thing that is uncomfortable to you. Yeah, I don't, I, I, and that's across the board. That's in, you know, in any, in any work of work of fiction or work of art or movie or whatever. Cruelty is a, is a very awful thing to, to contemplate. It, it's almost, um, I don't know. It's like an abdication of, I wouldn't say humanity. That's why when people say, oh, the cat is so mean, you know, it's chasing the mouse. That's a different level. That doesn't yeah. have anything to do with, with kids. These are animals being animals, right? They don't, that's different. It has nothing to do with this kind of planned and willful enjoyment of someone else's pain. Hmm. So maybe it's the enjoyment aspect of it because for example, Dracula, I don't know. Well, I mean, Dracula might enjoy his food, but it's not the same thing as 
enjoying your pain, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. And even though, you know, it was really interesting when I sat down to adapt Dracula for, you know, this immersive event, I went through the book to, you know, comb out his actual words, all the speeches that he makes in the book. And there are damn few of them. Hmm. If you go back and look, he doesn't say that much. And that made it a challenge to to try to how is how am I going to represent what this character is about by using his own words when there are so few of them? And yeah, I don't think of him as enjoying it's not it's not the same. It, there is certainly a cruel aspect there, but it's almost I want to say it's almost a class aspect too because he does go on and on about those boyars and how you know the peasants and blah 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 and and there's a big class aspect in the in Dracula too. I think on my take on cruelty is it, it is disturbing when, and this is all eye of the beholder too. I mean, it's all you know under um, your own interpretation, but whether it's pure or or uh, mindless cruelty, or or rather just cruelty for someone who is undeserving of it, that is is definitely a um, an unquestionable reaction of dislike and discomfort. Whereas you do have other types of cruelty, like say you have a, I don't know, a revenge horror movie or, or a revenge movie of right. any kind. You almost enjoy seeing that cruelty when it's enacted upon the people that have already done cruel things, but they've done cruel things to people that don't seem to have deserved it. So it puts a blanket or a wrapper of acceptance around this cruelty because now it's it's retribution. It's not cruelty. Right. And there's an aspect of justice in there too, eye for an eye. Where you go, okay, yeah, they're, and, but you can, you can also, that's quite right what you're saying, because you can also examine that and go, well, I'm enjoying watching this person, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the baddies getting tortured to death and I'm, I'm here for that. Where's my, where's my empathy, right? Where, why am I liking this? Why is it okay for this to happen? I mean, yeah, he's bad and he, you know, destroyed the world and all, but it's still, is this necessary? How about we just do a headshot and call it a day, yeah. right? But no, you know, no, we're pulling out his fingernails. But yeah, there is, it's it's justice, but it is also revenge. Well, Chris brought up ju- justice and revenge, <clears throat> but I want to go back to, you know, the difference between uh, like Dracula versus that Holocaust movie. You brought up, you know, c- almost casual versus, I don't know what you would call the other one, intentional. Um systemic right like a systemic apparatus of cruelty and within it it seems to give people the freedom or it 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 pretends to offer people the freedom to act any way they fucking well please right it's like i'm seeing the people who run this camp treat you guys as lower than dirt and non-human so i guess i can do it too i can do whatever i want but isn't systemic also casual? No, not at all. I don't think. No, systemic has a purpose. I mean, systemic has a reason. It can be casual. in the fact that you're just uh, passively following orders, if I can use the term. Right. Right. That's the cliche. You're just doing as the rest of the sheep are doing because it's, it's, it's easy. You don't have to make a decision because my compatriot is doing it. So I'm going to do it. And because it makes me less culpable, right? Gosh, everyone was doing it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just or me. to not even view it as being or not to not even view it as being cruel is just to say, well, I'm just following the rules. Right. Or I'm just following orders. I mean, there's a part yeah. of you that wonders, 
And it isn't even the people who were participating in the hands-on cruelty. It's the people who stand back from it and are like, la, 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 la. We don't talk about what happens, you know, over there in Auschwitz. And I may have misunderstood your earlier description of the Holocaust movie in that I thought you were saying that there were individuals specifically being intentionally cruel, um, not just because they were following the system, but because of whatever personal motivations. But they that's had. that's part of it too, right? I think there that is part of it, and we're seeing a little bit of that writ much smaller, but with deadly consequences as well in the behavior of people who won't act to mitigate the plague. Right? It's like what I want. I've been, I've been told that I have good reasons for feeling the way that I do. And so I'm not perhaps examining my behavior. I'm saying you don't have a right to tell me I can't be free. And so whatever happens to you happens and I don't care. And right. in some ways that's been the most shocking aspect of all of this is watching how many people just don't care about yeah. other people. They really, I mean, they demonstrably don't give a shit. That's extremely disturbing. I mean, I knew True. we were a bad species, but wow. Giving a shit takes too much time these days. No, no, nobody got time for that. I guess not because they have things to do, right? They don't have to care about, you know, your elderly mom or your, or your three-year-old for that matter, right? It's like, get out of my way. I got to go do whatever it is I do. Yeah, it's, that has been amazing. A bunch of people have pointed out that in the movie Contagion, the climax is how now the vaccine has been developed and how everyone is excited to get it. And, you know, wow, this is the thing we've been waiting for. Never once did I expect that people would react to this by not wanting to participate in something that would stop it. I, I was blindsided, never saw that coming. Agreed. But, you know, the last couple of times this, this kind of thing happened, it, I haven't done any research on this, so I can't say, but, uh, you know, I don't think those vaccines were created as quickly as the current ones are not to say that I don't trust them. I've been vaccinated. I do trust the science, but you know, that argument couldn't have been made the last time around is what I'm saying. And there have always been people that are that, I mean, there were people who would not have their children vaccinated for, you know, MMR vaccines or, but the burden was always on them to remove themselves from the population. It's like, well, your child can't go to school without these normal vaccines. So you'll have to make other arrangements rather than say, no, my kid is going to go to school. And if my kid gives your kid measles and your kid dies, oh, well, I'm still free. That I'm wondering too, how much of this amazing abdication of responsibility. It just, especially when, yeah, it's like my kid is what matters and not yours that I don't, I just, I, I'll be very interested to see, although I will probably never watch them, all the, the films that will come out and the, the, the art that will be made looking at this pandemic or looking at the way people behaved or. Oh yeah. I mean, zombie movies from today moving forward will never be the same. Right. Exactly. It's, this has changed us all in in ways that we can't begin to grapple with, right? So, and th- I mean, that goes back to what we were saying about trauma too, right? Where this is a, a global trauma that we've all experienced in different ways, but you don't go back to normal. Normal is different now because mm-hmm. you're different. 
So it's like when yeah. people would come back from wars and they'd say, do you have shell shock? In a way, that's kind of what's great about humans is that we don't really like going to war and slaughtering each other. So it gives you problems afterwards, which sort of speaks well to us as a, as a species, I guess. Some of us, anyway. Some of us, yeah. <laughs> Some of us. It's a, it's a spectrum. Um, speaking of trauma. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Can we go back and it's talk segue. about Halloween? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, did anything traumatic actually happen to you in your teenage years? Oh, that you, you know, again, in a, in a broad sense, let's say, I think the, which is also why I loved writing YA, the, the teenage years are times of such intensity, even, even for a benign example that we've all gone through, you know, when you have first love, you don't know there's going to be second love. And so if that doesn't work out, it really feels like the end of the world, right? Like, yeah. oh no, I had this thing and now it's over. Oh shit. Now what? <laughs> oh my God. And it, it, in, in, in hindsight, you look back, but at the time, those feelings are quite intense, yeah. right? Yeah. And when you're in your teenage years, everything is traumatic. Everything's turned up to 11. And there's that, that sense of, and I don't know what it, it's like for young people now. I, you know, with all these different incredibly awful things looming over them, but that sense of possibility that other things can happen that are than the things that are happening to me now, you know, for good or bad. That's huge when you're young and you're starting to have more agency too. So it's not like you, you're able to plan and to do things and to, you know, enact your will on your own life in a way that you couldn't when you were, were small. Would you say any of these uh, traumas that you experienced in your teenage years uh, changed your behaviors moving forward? Probably not. <laughs> Not in, not in a meaningful way, anyway. So moving to adult years, um, you had already mentioned the Sarah Waters Fingersmith. I think you said that you had uh, read that in your adult years. Yeah. Anything else that jumps out at you as being really impactful during your adult years now? Maybe I top don't know. Three? I'm trying to think of a, <laughs> of a good example. Um, the the HBO series Deadwood. My husband and I watched it, and I remember getting to the end of the first episode and we looked at each other and we're like, is there more of this? How do we get more of this? This is this. And it was so much all of a piece that the, the books that I wrote after seeing that um, I wrote a, a trilogy about Victorian puppeteers called under the poppy. And I'm sure that the, just the wonderful interlocking construction that David Milch created with Deadwood has, you know, under the poppy owes a, a tip of the top hat to, because it's like, you made your thing. I'm going to make a thing too. I'm going to make my world. And they're not mm -hmm. the same, but what I loved so much about that series and especially as a period drama it gives you the feeling of how it might have been to live life in that era because it isn't only actually, you know, another um, Tom Hardy's taboo does it too. 
it gives you the feeling of reality. You don't feel like you're watching people put on hoop skirts, right? It's like the re- the reality was so intense in that series and and to a, a lesser extent in Taboo, which I don't know if, if that's ever coming back. That was a great two-season series. That kind of reality, I think we're always looking for. I know I'm always looking for when I'm trying to make something. I want to make it as real to the shared experience of being human as I possibly can, because that's where, you know, that's where you're going to meet the reader. That's where you're going to meet, you know, whoever you're trying to have this conversation with. You know, I've been looking back through our conversation, the notes I've been taking, trying to look for, um, you know, common themes. And I'm starting to see one, uh, you know, other than some of the things that we've already talked about, um, period dramas seem to be a theme for you. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know, I guess. Um, Probably in the sense of worlds that are, meticulously created. I mean, that's what was Mm. also so great about the first alien film. It wasn't like, you know, spacemen and pew, pew, pew. (laughs) And it was these people on this fucking ship just doing their jobs. Right. Mm. It wasn't anything exciting. They weren't searching for bold new worlds. They were doing their damn jobs. And And it was understood because it was, uh, it was very in-depth world building. Right. And you felt, okay, these are just people that are trying to get to the end of this, you know, stint and get paid and they squabble about being paid and there's a hierarchy on the ship too. And it's so well done because it's so completely a world that you believe every single thing that happens. And you, that's why you can believe in the things that are not, you know, real. You can believe in things that are period dramas or period pieces. Um, I guess it gives it that much more entertainment and credibility because you have no choice but to have a very in-depth world building in a period piece because right. you have to recreate almost 100% of it. If you're right, if you're doing a good job, I mean, we've all seen things where it's like, oh, this is supposed to be set in this time. And you're like, nah, I don't, I mean, you have the costumes and stuff, but I'm just, the feel is missing. I just don't buy it. I also, just what's that it. star, what's that Starbucks cup doing over there? I mean. I know, right? Could you please? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to do period pieces. Well, it's, it is. Um, I was going to say it's a way to set up certain rules. You know, we talked earlier about, you know, childhood games and adhering to rules or throwing them right. away. It's, mm-hmm. it's, this is a way to say, okay, here, here's some ground rules. Uh, and then go from oh, there. Yeah. That works great in horror. I mean, you know, if you set a, a movie in say 1980 or earlier, no more worry about cell phones. They're not even a thing yet. Right. right. Oh yeah. Agreed. So, I'm going to skip past some of the other adult questions, jump down to the, uh, the wrap up questions. There's, there's still a few of these, but these cover your entire life and are not just about horror. They could be about any, any genre. Um, so the first two questions I'll give you, I'll give them both to you at the same time because the answer could be the same for them, or it could be two different answers. Okay. The two questions would be, what is your favorite movie? Or in your case, if you want to give book, that's fine too. Um, and then the other would be what movie or book have you watched more times than any other or read? Um, Wuthering Heights. I've read more probably than any other book. What film have I seen more than any other film? I don't know. I'm not a huge rewatcher of things. Um, although I did just rewatch the new Macbeth. I had seen it and 
and then I watched it again because I wanted to hit some of the beats again. Oh, I'm failing at these questions. I have to press the buzzer. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> uh, to go back to one for a second here. Uh, so where I said, um, you know, what, which one have you watched more times than the other and which one is your favorite? Would you say Wuthering Heights would be your favorite book or is there something else that you would say is actually your favorite, even though you've read that one more? It's, it is really hard to say. Um, some books I go back to. Ridley Walker is another book that I love a lot and I always get something from it when I go back. It's probably the best dystopian. It's for sure the best dystopian novel I've ever read. The concepts are very complex, but the way that he tells them is just the narrative just drags you along. Russell Hoban, he's one of my favorite writers. Um, yeah, I always freeze up and like 10 minutes after we're done, I'll go, oh man, uh, why don't you say this? <laughs> oh man, what about that? How could you forget that? Um <laughs> That's why we go through this in stages because of exactly that. Right, kind of thing. because it, it uh, another book that I love a lot is um, Anthony Burgess's "A Dead Man in Deptford," about the poet and playwright Christopher Marlowe. It it's just one of the most beautiful books that you will ever read. The language is fantastic. The way he uses language is just wow. It's a gift, and I've read that multiple times. And the book of his, everybody knows, is Clockwork Orange, right? I do recognize that name. <laughs> uh, Never heard of it. Let's jump back for a second, because, for example, with both of these, Ridley Walker and A Dead Man in Deptford, you're you mentioned the things that you like about them as an auteur, but what's the emotional impact on them? Oh, there it's very different, but in the end, it's an individual trying to not just grapple with their world. They're both they're both very gifted people and. We see it coming out in Ridley when he starts using the the puppets. The puppets are involved. And there's a great scene in the beginning of the novel where they go out to the diggings, this excavation. They're like excavating the ground, I guess, to see what they can literally dig up, what they can find. And he finds this little figure and he knows it pertains to him in some way, but he doesn't understand how. And when the foreman of the digging says, you know, because they're not allowed to keep the shit they find. And it's like, what do you got there? What do you, what do you have there? And instead of giving up this thing, Ridley literally throws the guy into the mud head first and runs away and leaves everything behind, leaves literally everything behind his home, his way of being everything, because the pull of this thing is so strong and he doesn't understand it, but he has to, he knows that it belongs to him. And Marlowe in that sense was, he, you know, he was a, was a poor man's son, a cobbler's son, and he ended up being able to go to university at the, kind of at the 11th hour. He was much older than the other students in, in his school. And here's this person who had this gift. He had this gift of, of poetry and, and of words and pageantry. And it's about how, how do these figures operate in this difficult world that they live in and how are they able to exercise their gifts despite, you know, all the, the tribulations and all the problems that come upon them while they're exercising their gifts and sometimes as a direct result of doing so. So, and the language in both of them is so beautiful and so precise and well done. 
that it, it's, it, how can you not love it? So the next question is, do you see any kinds of common threads about what kind of horror you like? Cannibalism, occult, metaphysical. That's quite a menu. Yes. <laughs> it's the sampler. <laughs> it's the tasting menu, right? <laughs> yes. Well, you did mention um, hunger earlier. Yeah, I don't know. That's what I'm doing right now. Is I'm scrolling back through the notes I've I've made, seeing if I can find a commentary. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Probably you'd be able to see it better than I would. I'm probably too. Um, it's probably too close to me, mm-hmm. right, to be able to see. I don't know. Well, I'm seeing some common themes, but not particularly related to horror because we haven't really dug into horror. I don't feel as much in this call. Going back to the themes, though. So, I mean, very early on, you mentioned, you know, shock of injustice and and not to trust authority. Also similar with Dracula, you know, there's the authority, uh, the power structure there and humans not being at the top of the food chain. Unreliable narrator has come up, which could also kind of tie in with the not trusting authority in certain situations. You've mentioned multiple times liking a strong voice. Uh, I guess maybe we could dig into that a little more for a little better explanation of that. Is there something special about that that really that you key into? I don't know, but this is super interesting to listen to, I must say. It is, it's truly like therapy. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, probably the, the strong voice is the thing that I follow in any piece of any piece of art, any in music too. And I want to know that there is an individual mind behind, or, you know, a collection of minds, but individuals behind created work. And because I tend to trust individual voices more than say a corporate voice. So maybe that goes back to, you know, distrust of authority, but Mm -hmm. the same way that, you know, big tentpole movies usually are not for me because I don't, no matter what director you have, you generally have to hew to a particular viewpoint and it is not necessarily shaped by the narrative. It's shaped by commerce. So yeah, that's not as interesting. There could be something here that may have tied in with something you said earlier. So when I think about what you just said, I I want to know that there's an individual voice behind a piece of work. To me, that almost sounds like you're saying, I want to know what it is you're trying to tell me. And this is opposed to what we talked before about, you know, active vagueness versus passive vagueness. And also, uh, I think struggling to find the words here. You mentioned like a dialogue between you and this other artist where they're trying to get you to think about something. And and you can't have that dialogue or have the thought if you don't know what it is they're trying to tell you. Or if you don't know that there's the same way that you will, you will trust a friend telling you a story. And if your friend comes in and starts telling you this, you know, this wild tale, you trust the teller. So you're not immediately going to say, oh, that's bullshit. Or what do you mean? Or, you know, if they say, wait, wait, just let me tell you, you're going to sit and listen because you trust the voice that's telling you things. Right. So maybe that is part of it. The idea that there has to be, there needs to be a storytelling voice behind the, all the media that I'm, I'm liking. I need to know that I'm being told a story by a particular entity. And what I was saying is it's not just about the story, but the 
interplay between you and the story. And the, right. And which leads back to the teller, right? Because that's the, the unseen third in the room. It's like we are reading the book, but the, the writer is there as well with us. Whether they're living or dead doesn't matter. They're still there because that's the, or the director or whatever, that's the particular mind that set this thing in motion. And that's who you're really having the dialogue with. Right. You know, when you're reading Wuthering Heights, you're really having a dialogue with Emily Bronte. I didn't say this earlier, but when we first started talking about some of this uh, stuff, it occurred to me that I thought, you know, I bet you probably don't like movies that are just like a slice in the life of if there's no story uh, implicit in that. Like you can do a slice of slice of life story that has a story in it, or it can just be a series of unconnected events that mean nothing. Right. I get. And that part of that is just my own narrative engine is always, you know, idling. It's always ready to roll. And then I start trying to impose narrative on things if it doesn't have any. And that, you know, that way lies madness. So you can't, you can't rewrite something or, or reshoot something. That's the, yeah, it would be harder for me to engage with because I think in terms of narrative. You know, the next question here is then, you know, why horror? I think that we've already mentioned that these things aren't really tied to horror for you, but it sounds like the engagement is the the key element of it for you. Right. And that, and especially in a really good horror film or a good horror novel, you are more willing to go into those extreme situations if there's a, if you're following that strong voice, right? You're more inclined to be open to what you're reading or what you're seeing. You know, you just said a a word that made me think of the word, or, or I don't know if maybe you did say discourse, but um, I'm thinking that might be a better word than engagement. Discourse. Better in the sense of? Describing what it is that you seem to have been getting out of all the things that we've been talking about, you know, all the different media movies and books and things that we've talked about and what you like in them. It's, it's, it's engagement. Yes. But it's also the discourse of ideas. And it's both too, right? I mean, you need, you, it it doesn't have to be either or you need to have engagement to start with. Right. Otherwise the ideas can just, then they'll just sort of be academic. They won't, they won't mean as much to you. And if there's only, if there's nothing behind it, but pure sensation, that's okay for a minute, but you do your narrative mind wants more. My narrative mind wants more. It's not in our list of questions here, but the thing that's coming to my mind then is, well, then what's worth talking about? Nothing. Nihilism wins. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much for having me. This is really (laughs) I mean, what's the trump card slam thing, really? Right. Right. Well, yeah, that and that and that's the point of art too. That's why I think one of the greatest pieces of art that has ever been written, and I am not fooling, is the Velveteen Rabbit. And if you don't remember the Velveteen Rabbit from when you were small, or if like me, you never read it till you were an adult and I was reading it to my own son, there's a line in it that, and you know, the Velveteen Rabbit is this toy rabbit that this kid has and loves and plays with and stuff. And one day he's playing outside and the, the Velveteen Rabbit sees like real rabbits running around and he he sees there's something different, you know, about him and them. He understands that they're not the same. And he asks one of the other toys in the nursery, you know, what is real? 
And the rocking horse explains to him and says, well, when you've been loved for a long time, you know, and maybe some of your fur has rubbed off or you don't look quite as pretty as you did, but that love makes you real. And at the end of the story, the little boy becomes ill with scarlet fever and the doctor says, oh, you have to take all his bedding and stuff and all his toys and burn them. Take them out to the trash heap at the bottom of the garden and burn them. And the Velveteen Rabbit says, what is the use then of becoming real if it all ends like this? I can't think of a better existential question for anybody, right? What is the use of becoming real if it all ends in, you know, a fire at the end of the garden? Uh, I particularly like how that ties back in with Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Yeah. What's the use? What's What's the the use use? of defending this house and keeping the people alive when you're just going to be shot by a stupid misunderstanding in the end anyway? Right. Why when some fucking racist is going to put one in you just because your head happened to pop up like he thinks it's a shooting gallery, right? (laughs) Just shooting anything that moves, but it, it you know, extra points if you're black. Yeah. Uh, and that, the best art is asking those questions, right? Like, what's the point? Well, yeah, then, I mean, I think that's my answer to the question is is the asking of the questions. Like, you can say, what is the point if everything comes around and it's all moot anyway, and in the grand scheme of things, there is no change or, or effect from your actions in the grand scheme of things. I, I guess the point is... The experience. Right. Or that why and why and why in the face of that that nihilism would we why would we care? Why would we try? Why would we, you know, try to 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 become real to a little boy if it all ends like that? Why would we even does that negate what the guy did in Night of the Living Dead that he saved all those people? I mean, does that negate the goodness? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't, but it negates him not. It sure negates him. Yeah. 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 And then that's, but that gives you the contrast too of this act of, you know, wanton, stupid. It isn't even cruelty. It doesn't even rise to the level of cruelty, right? It's just boom, you know, okay. It's this, this stupidity, this, this human stupidity and malice juxtaposed with everything that he's gone through to try to help people. And it, it, it asks you, well, you know, what is, yeah, what's the use? Should, is it, is it better to be good than not to be good? Is it better to be loved and real or not? You know, does it, what matters? Does it matter? Debatable. Well. Yeah, but that's. It is debatable. But that's what, like we're saying it, about discourse, right? Mm-hmm. That's great. Then that takes you back to the discourse. Yeah, I think, at least for me personally, it is worth doing. There's lots of different reasons why it's worth doing. But as you say, the the laying out of those and discussing them is the discourse part of it. And that's what really great art can do for us, right? It can it can involve us emotionally in the discourse so it becomes it becomes as real to us, right? As if it was something that really happened. So if we were to sum up this call, I guess we could sum up into that just that one word, discourse. Discourse and right, discourse and engage. Can we put a slash discourse slash engagement? Sure. <laughs> engagement slash discourse. Ooh. And the slash can be for horror too, so we got everything. Yes. Yeah. Last last question, considering the theme of the podcast, is there anything relevant that you're aware of that we haven't asked about? No, this was great. This was like this was this <laughs> was almost it was like a uh it was like a journey that we took. This was it fun. Was. I hope you guys had fun. I did. I did. We have. I have. 
spot to pitch anything you want to pitch before we wrap up? Oh, yeah, totally. Everybody must go immediately to darkfactory.club. And that is my new immersive fiction project. The novel of the same name, Dark Factory, comes out in May of this year. But the narrative has already started on the site via... um, there is storytelling there. There is some music. There is some video. There's all kinds of things going on. I see antlers. And, cool. Is there Wendigo oh, action? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's heavy antler action. Yeah. So the it's a, it's, it's a way of taking immersion a step further for me in my work, and I'm very excited about it. Meerkat Press has been a wonderful collaborator across the board in making this come real. And I haven't seen anyone do anything quite like this before. So if I am a pioneer, I'm very happy about that. And it's been a ton of fun and we are are just starting. So we have some launch events, live launch events planned for later in the year and fun will be had there and there will be antlers. There will be lots of antlers. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put together a bio for you and we can link to that on our, your bio page. If you yeah, thank you. Yes. I would appreciate that. Yes. So thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to anybody else out there listening. Again, please do come visit us at horrormexishappy.com. Uh, we've got link to our, links to our social media accounts there. And um, really the best thing you can probably do is just spread the word. Let other people know about us if you like what we're doing. <laughs>